yeah, we're, we're going to discuss a, an intense uh, chapter and one that uh, has been uh, a, a big influence in my life. And so when Paul said, uh, when Paul told me, hey, you can preach on whatever you want, I'm like, all right, let's do this. So Colossians 1 is where we're going to be uh, starting with and kind of focusing on this morning. And uh, yeah, mainly the first uh, 23 verses of chapter 1, but... We're also focused, like 15 to 23 is really where we're staying with. So I'm going to kind of skim through the first 15 verses, and then we'll focus on the last half. Um, And uh, as we explore Colossians chapter 1, there are several themes that jump out to me, but ultimately the chapter points back to one thing, and that is God's sovereignty. God is in charge, God is sovereign, and we simply reap the benefits of having this relationship with our sovereign God. Let's pray as we begin. Father God, you are so good, and in... um, we are so blessed to be able to uh, be here this morning, uh, to be able to worship freely. Father God, I pray that your words uh, will speak through me, Lord. They are not my words. Um, they are completely yours. And I pray that you soften the hearts of everybody in this room to hear exactly what you uh, want us to hear, Lord, in your name. Amen. So before we dive into the, the, the chapter itself, I want to paint a picture of what the book of Colossians is about, what the book itself is about. And the book was written by Paul uh, to Christians living in the small city of Colossae. Paul was in prison at the time of writing this letter, and the book of Colossians is Christ-centered at its heart. Paul goes to great lengths to explain the supremacy and sovereignty and the preeminence of Christ, of Jesus. This sovereignty of Jesus is in all things and for all people. Paul writes about the good news of the lordship or the sovereignty of Jesus over all creation. Why does Paul write so much about the sovereignty of Jesus? Well, it's no different from then until today. The world challenges the supremacy of Christ. The world challenges the sovereignty of God. The world attempts to undermine this. In Colossae, for the Christians there, pressures would have filled up. Challenges, people trying to tell them to worship other things, people trying to tell them to worship Rome, to worship money, to worship uh, other gods. In the same way, we have similar challenges to the supremacy or sovereignty of Christ. The world, sin, the devil, tries to distract us and lead us to believe that we can do things on our own. We are led to believe that other people, that money, that fame, that media, that beauty, that sports, are more important than God. We are led to believe that other things are more supreme than God, more supreme than Jesus. Christians in Colossae and Christians here in Canada and around the world grow uncertain about whether Jesus is truly our all in all, whether Jesus is truly enough. We doubt God's sovereignty, we doubt salvation, we grow weary, we grow tired when life gets hard, and we doubt that God is in control. And these are very similar circumstances to the Christians in Colossae and is one of the main focuses of the book of Colossians as written by Paul. Paul's response to these pressures, Paul's response to the world challenging and undermining the supremacy of Jesus, the sovereignty of God, Paul's response to the the doubts growing in the lives of the Christians was to write the letter of Colossians, which at its root fixes our eyes on who Jesus is. Christians in Colossae, and in turn us right here today, become strengthened in our defense against the temptations and worldly pressures because we have Jesus who is fully supreme, fully sovereign over all things. Paul redirects the distracted nature of Christians back to Christ, 
back to Jesus himself, back to God who is fully Jesus and is the creator of all things, savior of all peoples, and victor over all enemies. The book of Colossians allows us to focus entirely on who Christ is and what he has accomplished, which is the most important thing to ever know and the only thing to base our life on. God is sovereign. He is before all. He is in all. He has authority over all things, and through Christ, we can be reconciled back to God for all of the heavenly realms to see and for all of earth to see. Paul, as he does with each one of his letters, begins with a greeting and a prayer. He focuses on the grace, the love, and hope of a Christ-centered life. Verses 3 to 8 of chapter 1 are in sorts a reaffirmation of the church of Colossae. What they believe, what their faith is, and what they should be encouraged for, which is their faith and dedication. The church is clearly doing a good job of spreading the gospel. In verse 5 and 6, Paul writes that the church has heard the gospel and the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you. Clearly, the Colossians understand the grace of God in truth. They are Christians. They believe in the deliverance from sin because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They have been redeemed and forgiven of sins. Paul is encouraging and reminding the church of this. It all stems back to the sovereignty of Christ. Without the sovereignty made clear on the cross, there is no faith, there is no hope. Verse 7 and 8 mention a man named Epaphras, which Paul commends for his faithful serving of Christ. He uses Epaphras as an example of faithfulness and encourages the church in Colossae. And as we continue in Paul's greeting to the church, we see his prayers for the church in verses 9 to 13. Paul is writing about how he prays for Colossae. Paul and Timothy, who he is in prison with, pray that the church in Colossae would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul again suggests here that because we have Christ, who is sovereign over all creation, we have access to wisdom and knowledge that we without God could never obtain. This knowledge and wisdom only comes because of our relationship with our sovereign God. How we could base our knowledge and wisdom on anything else other than God, who is in all and created all and is in full control over all things in this realm and within the heavenly realms. Again, this is a, this is a consistent prayer in, in Paul's letters and in Paul's writing. In Ephesians 1 to 8, Paul says, uh, which he, being God, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And Paul again writes about the knowledge and wisdom that Christians have because of the Holy Spirit, which is fully God and lives within us in 1 Corinthians 12.8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Paul reminds the church in Colossae, the Christians in Colossae, and also us as we read this 2,000 years later, that we have grace, that we have access to God, who is fully sovereign over all things, fully in charge. This access only comes through Christ. Alongside this grace, which we do not deserve and which comes from our fully sovereign God, we also receive knowledge and spiritual wisdom. Paul goes on in verse 10 to provide a practical step upon experiencing wisdom of our sovereign God and after receiving grace, after receiving salvation. This practical step also comes in the form of a challenge to both Colossae and in turn us today. 
Paul challenges and prays that the church in Colossae will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 10, as we just read, is a challenge for all of us, and an and an incredible reminder, because of God's grace, because we believe in a sovereign God, we then have a task that God commands us. Paul recites a calling here for every Christian to live out their beliefs, to live out their faith. This is a great challenge for us today. We are called to move our faith from simply the knowledge in our head and into our heart. Upon believing this in our hearts, we have to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let's pause here. For a minute. What does this mean? What does it mean when Paul says to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Well, God cannot be near sin. God is the distinct opposite of sin. God is holy, so to walk in a manner worthy of God himself means to refrain from all sin. This is a common writing in Paul's letters, and we can go on about other times where Paul talked about refraining from sin. But let's not skip over this idea. To walk in a manner worthy of God himself. Think about that. This is not a statement that suggests a halfway in sort of mentality. It's not simply that we can choose on Sunday to do good, but the rest of the week just kind of give up on our faith and do whatever we want. To walk in a manner worthy of God himself means to refrain from all sin. All the time. If God is sovereign, if we are called to walk in a manner worthy of God himself, then all sin, all of our actions... All of our thoughts have to be made in concordance, in accordance with the way that God would want us to. This means, to say it plainly, no sin. We can go on about the various aspects in our life that are sinful. And again, Paul spends a lot of his letters, a lot of his time writing about the various aspects, um, the various sins that uh, the church and therefore us fall into. We can spend forever talking about them. But the point here is, are you walking in a manner worthy of God himself, worthy of our sovereign God himself? Yes, there is grace. I'm not trying to say, and Paul was not trying to say here, that there is no grace after we sin. But if we are truly are a Christian, if we truly believe in our sovereign God, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then that is going to make a profound difference in our life. It's going to make an impact in our day-to-day life and how we act and how we choose, uh, what we choose to do, what we choose to think about. Once this makes a difference, once we move this knowledge, this belief from simply our head and into our heart, we can then walk in a manner worthy of God himself. We cannot forget that as Christians, we are called to a very high standard of living, such a high standard that God himself will be willing to dwell with us. Are you living up to that high standard of our incredible God? Ultimately, none of us are going to fully live up to that standard. And hear me out on this one. None of us are perfect. Every single one of us falls short of the glory of God. Every day we make mistakes, we sin against God, we do not walk in a manner worthy of God. Yet that is then where grace comes in. When we fall, when we slip, we have the incredible opportunity to turn to God ask for forgiveness, and become right with him. Walking in a manner worthy of God means striving every day to honor God and to do all things in thought and deed for the glory of God. 
Walking in a manner worthy of God also means that when we fail, when our sinful ambitions get in the way, we turn immediately to God and his grace through Jesus on the cross. We ask for forgiveness and we make a commitment to do better. Walking in a manner worthy of God goes hand in hand with grace because otherwise we simply couldn't be anywhere near God. Yet because of Jesus and our reconciliation, we have this opportunity and therefore we must choose to live this out in all that we do. An aspect of living this out, of walking in a manner worthy of God, and Paul goes on in verse 10, we are also called to bear fruit in every good work. This means that we allow everything that we do to point back to God. If everything that we do points back to God, we are making God the clear-cut focus in our lives. God is sovereign, and everything that we do should allow the world around us, and in fact, as we talked about in Ephesians several months ago, the entire heavenly realms to marvel at God. To marvel at, at, at God who is sovereign over all things on earth and in the heavenly realms. Everything that we do should bear fruit. Everything that we do should point back to God. Sometimes we don't even realize what we're doing. Somebody could witness what we're doing and a, and a, a fruit could be bore and that person goes on and lives for Christ and we don't even realize it. Everything that we do when it points back to God should be pointing back to God. We cannot take this lightly. It is a challenge, but it is also a blessing and gives us a greater purpose in this world and even in the heavenly realms. Finally, that last part of verse 10 reiterates the increase of knowledge. We can never have too much knowledge of God, too much spiritual knowledge. There is an infinite knowledge in the universe, and we have access to some of it as we grow in faith and as we rely on God for all things. Paul's prayer goes on in verses 11 to 14. Verse 11, Paul prays that the Christians in Colossae will be strengthened with all power. That is strengthened by God's power according to God's glorious might. Wow. Next time you doubt yourself, next time you are confronted with temptation, next time you wonder your purpose, your belonging, think about the fact that you have access to God's glorious might. There is literally nothing more powerful than this on earth or in the heavenly realms. This again points to the sovereignty of God, something we have access to because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This strengthening by God's glorious might leads us to endurance and patience, another theme in Paul's letters. This is another, yeah, God strengthens us. This strength allows us to move forward with complete endurance no matter what gets thrown at us. Verse 12 reiterates the confidence and incredible grace that we have as Christians. We each have access to the inheritance of Christ. We have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I love that word, qualified. We are qualified without even deserving it. We share the same inheritance as the saints. We get to claim our full standing as an enlightened member of God's chosen people. All the conditions have been met for us to claim our inheritance. We have access to God's full inheritance. Verse 13 and 14 go on to say that we have been transferred. We have been freed. We have been saved from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. All this then allows us to be forgiven, for us to be redeemed. So, I've skimmed through the first 14 verses. Doing okay so far, time-wise. Um, and again, very deep. We can go on about all these verses. 
But as we continue on in this passage, Paul begins to unpack what is known as the preeminence of Christ. Paul has greeted the Colossians. Paul has challenged them. Paul has encouraged them. Paul has reminded them of one of their own and given them instructions regarding living out their faith, walking in a manner worthy of God himself. As we move into verse 15, Paul begins a poetic description of what is known as the preeminence of Christ. This scripture is incredible and flows so well together. In many ways, it is similar to a psalm and paints the picture of what it means to call God sovereign, almighty, preeminent. I want to read these verses together, 15 to 20 of Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul lists all the things that the church in Colossae, and therefore us, can be thankful for and pray for. He reminds us of what we have with Christ. This leads right into a powerful conversation that starts in verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus being fully God. First, Paul is saying here that God has been manifested to people, to the church in Colossae, and to us through Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, of our invisible God. The invisible God now made into the image of a man through Jesus. Next, Paul goes on to mention Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. Let's pause and talk about the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Psalm 89, verse 27, prophesies this, saying, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. If Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, what this means, and to put it Put it simply, again, we can touch on this a lot more if we wanted to, is that Jesus is the heir of all things. The firstborn son was always known as the father's heir. Hebrews 1 verse 2 clearly states this, says, but in in these days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Going even deeper, the created order exists for Jesus. One day, the heir, being Jesus, will enter visibly into his full inheritance before all of humanity. On this day, the church, Christians, all those who believe, will then share in that inheritance. This is mentioned in Colossians 3. So later on, in the same letter that Paul's written to, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. A sovereignty of God is manifested in his son, Jesus. Everything flows from God, and all those who who believe are qualified to share in God's inheritance because of Jesus. Verse 16 goes on to elaborate on God's sovereignty by saying, For by him all things were created, not just on earth, but in heaven, things we cannot even begin to comprehend. Paul goes on to illustrate how there are things we cannot even begin to comprehend. All things were created through God and for God. This is further explanation of the preeminence of God at its core. 
All things flow from God. All things, not just on earth, but in the realms we cannot even begin to comprehend. The realms we cannot even see. Everything flows from God. This verse even mentions authorities and rulers. Why? Because even the authorities in the heavenly places bow down to the authority and the sovereignty of God. He is before all, he is in all, and he is in authority over all. And Jesus, being fully God, is therefore sovereign as well. Verse 17, as as Paul continues his eloquent description of the sovereignty and preeminence of Christ, says that God is before all things and everything is held together by God. Without God, there is nothing. Let's stop belittling God as the man in the sky. Let's stop belittling God by thinking we can do things on our own. We can't. Everything that we are, everything that we do, our entire existence stems from God. That is magnificent. And we get to share in God's inheritance. Because of the fact that everything flows from God, that God is sovereign overall, and that everything begins with God, the natural continuation of this is seen in verse 18. Paul says that God is the head of the body of the church. Paul starts this portion of scripture by talking about the preeminence and sovereignty of God not just on earth, but also in the heavenly realms. He continues in verse 18 to provide a practical understanding for the church in Colossae and there for us as to what it all means for us today. If God is sovereign, if the entire reason we exist is because of God, if God is in all, before all, creator of all, in authority over all, if we have life and freedom from sin because of the sovereignty of God, through his grace laid out for us on the cross, there is literally no other option as to who the head of the church is other than God, other than Jesus. Verse 18 says that he, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. Jesus, as the firstborn, the heir to God himself, is the head of the church. Everything that we do as a church body, as Christians, has to lead back to Jesus being at the head. Again, this isn't a new idea by Paul. He writes this in other ways throughout his letters. He wants the churches and us today to understand that not only that Jesus is the head of the church, but why Jesus is the head of the church. God is before all, in all, and has authority over all, including the church, including us. God sent his son as the head of the church. Again, it's easy sometimes to place other aspects in front of God, even when it comes to the church. Yet if God is the head through Jesus, the rightful and only choice for this, then everything we do as a church family and everything that we do as Christians should flow from that. This, in its essence, ends all disputes. Verse 18 goes on to reiterate the fact that Jesus is the firstborn and that he is preeminent before all things. This is Paul restating the importance of seeing Jesus at the head of the church and the church itself being created to bring glory to God. There is no other head than God through Jesus. Verse 19 suggests that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell where? In Jesus, in his Son. Jesus is fully God and has the fullness of God in him. It is through Jesus that we have access to God. God allowed Jesus to be the full and permanent mediator between us and God. Upon Jesus' death and resurrection, he then left the Holy Spirit, which is also fully God, for all those who believe to dwell with us. We have the Holy Spirit in us because of our faith and because 
we were left this upon Jesus' ascension. The Holy Spirit, which is fully God, dwells with us right here. The church, which at its core, is you and me. All believers make up the church as a whole, and God sent his Son, who has the fullness of God in him as the head of the church. God also, through the Holy Spirit, dwells with us today. What does this all mean? Well, to wrap up this beautiful explanation of the sovereignty and preeminence of Christ, and therefore God, Paul goes on in verse 20, saying, Through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross, of his cross. Why does God, why does the sovereign, all-powerful creator of all things choose to dwell with us? And keep in mind, God dwelling with us is his choice. It's, it's, it's nothing that we have done that makes us deserving of God, yet through God's grace, he chooses to dwell with us. Why does God dwell with us? The answer is simple, yet undeniably profound. To reconcile to himself all things. God, through his love, created a plan for all things to be reconciled back to him. All things to be reconnected to himself. God saw the fallen world. God saw the fallen humanity, even the fallen heavenly realms, and created a perfect plan to reconnect, to reconcile, to make right everything. This all happens in his timing, but with God, through the sovereign power of an incredible God, we have access to God himself, no matter what we have done, no matter who we are. God created a plan to make peace. Not just peace with each other, although that's part of it, but peace between us and God, us and humanity, and even the heavenly realms to God himself. Next time you doubt God, next time you ask yourself, where is God? Go back to this passage and reread these verses. Reread this, reread this description of, 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 of the sovereign God. It is right here. God, in his infinite and sovereign wisdom, created a plan to reconcile all things back to him. That gives us purpose. That gives us peace. That gives us joy amidst all things. This is all made possible through the blood of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So if God reconciled us, if God created a plan to bring us to himself, if we have access to the fullness of God because of the Holy Spirit that dwells in all believers, how do we respond? What do we do about this? Where are we? Where are you? Where am I today amidst all of this? Well, the answer comes in the next three verses. Let me pause here and say uh, that these three verses changed my life. They have a deep meaning for me, and I pray this morning that these words of Paul can resonate with you as well. Let's read Colossians 1, 21 to 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The answer of a response to the sovereign God who created a plan for us to be reconciled is seen in these verses. First, we have to realize how far off we are without God. Verse 21, after Paul explained the preeminence of Christ, the perfect plan of God, gives us our response by saying, and you. He's talking to the church in Colossae, but is talking to us as well. And you, and me, and Paul. Each 
one of us has a response to make. Yet as Paul says in verse 21, the response first stems from how far off we are. Verse 21 states, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Every single one of us is alienated. What does alienated mean? Literally like aliens, literally far off, separated, not part of the land, not part of the inheritance of Christ, distant. Oftentimes aliens were seen as the enemies. We are all aliens or enemies from God. We were all enemies of God. Simply by being part of this sinful world, we are enemies of God. We choose every day to distance ourselves from God. We become hostile in mind. We choose to push back against the perfect will of God. We choose to walk in a manner not worthy of God. We fight back against the will of God. We choose to live our own life. We choose our own way. We choose to cave to temptation. We fall victim to the world trying to tell us that God is not sovereign over all. We fall victim to making ourselves sovereign more important or making the things around us more important than God himself. We literally create hostility against God. This hostility comes with every sin that we have ever committed. Every time we cave to the temptations of this world, every time we mess up, every time we lie, every time we go off and do our own thing, we are hostile. We are aliens separated from the inheritance of Christ. We do evil deeds. Sometimes these are done on purpose in direct opposition to God. And then sometimes these deeds are done unintentionally, simply by living in this sinful world and allowing our intentions, our mind, our pride to get in the way. We do evil deeds. We do not choose to bear fruit in every work, which, remember, is something Paul challenged us with in verse 10. Maybe you are sitting here this morning and the guilt of your mistakes, the guilt of your sin is piling up before your eyes. Maybe you are currently living in a sinful habit that you haven't told a single person. Maybe you are living with an incredible regret of past mistakes and you simply can't get the thought of how terrible you are out of your mind. I have been right there with you. I did Mediba's uh, 10-month leadership program several years ago, and, and during this time, I spent a great deal of the year wrestling with my past mistakes, with my sp- sinful life prior to turning back to God. As I wrestled with my guilt, there were two distinct times that happened that changed my life. The first came during the first couple weeks of the program when we did um, a solo. We spent two nights and three days alone in the woods with simply time to pray, read the Bible, reflect. As I wrestled with guilt with my past mistakes, I came across these, these three verses in Colossians. They changed my life. I'm standing up here this morning as a very imperfect person. I have a tremendous amount of regret, of remorse, of sin, and sin that I still battle with at times. All of the sin, normally and rightfully, should mean that I am separated from God. All of the sin, every time we rebel against God, every time we become hostile against God and allow, and allow ourselves to do our own things, the very nature of our life is alienated, separated from God. Every evil deed that we do should mean that we have no place in the inheritance of God. Should mean that we have no place in having our sovereign God dwelling in us right here, right now. All of this should have meant in my life that the tidal wave of guilt should remain. Because without God's grace, we aren't forgiven. But God, verse 22, he, God, has now. Not later, not in 20 years, not 20 years ago when you gave your heart to God in Sunday school. 
but then went off on your own way. Not tomorrow. Right now, God has reconciled. God has and only God can, as sovereign over all and in all, who created his perfect plan for us to be made right, has been reconciled. How is he reconciled? Through his body of flesh, by his death. Through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. We are made right with God, no matter who we are, who we were, and what we have done. Some of you might now be thinking, well, sure, maybe I've been reconciled, but what I have done is so much worse. There is no way this even makes sense. Maybe you believe you are reconciled, yet you still hold on to the past mistakes. You still harbor your own guilt. You don't allow yourself to let go of your sinful past, your sinful present, because you do not feel worthy. The second major thing that happened to me during my year in Persago in regards to this topic happened in the Florida Everglades. I was trying to fall asleep in a tent and all of a sudden a thick fog appeared and I was overthrown by a tidal wave of guilt. All of my past mistakes, which I was wrestling with, came at me all at once. The devil was trying to make me think that I was worthless, that I was not deserving of anything. I distinctly remember this, and the only response I could think of was to say the name of Jesus tangibly. As I did this, saying, Jesus, 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 that wave of guilt left me, the cloud left, and I knew that I was forgiven. Between reading these verses and constantly going over them again and again, and that moment in the Everglades, I, for the first time in my life, felt completely forgiven. I had done so much in my life leading up to that point. I knew that God loved me. I had heard it all before, and I even wanted to live for God, yet I held on to an incredible amount of guilt. The first time I read this, I remember sitting on a cliff, praying, reading the Bible. I came across these verses, and it monumentally changed my life. These verses then became even real to me as the name of Jesus tangibly lifted the guilt of my past life and allowed me to move forward forgiven. Verse 21 lists off how far we are from God, how undeserving we are of God's grace, how hostile, how evil we are to the sovereign God of the universe. If things were to end there, if God did not choose to step in, and remember, God chose to step in, then we, were, then we are forever to be separated from God. But in verse 22, Paul goes on. He says, We are reconciled because of the death of Jesus in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, you are seen as holy. You are fully blameless before God. There is no record of your sin. It has been waked clear by the power of Jesus, by the fullness of God in Jesus, set into motion for all of the heavenly realms to see by a sovereign God who is in all and the creator of all. You as a Christ follower, upon believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus, become holy. How do we become holy? Because Jesus, who is filled by the fullness of God, provides us with access to God. Paul reiterates this in Colossians 2, again, later on in the letter. It says, for in him the The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. Paul says that the fullness of God dwells bodily. That, That means in Jesus, and because of that, when we believe in Jesus, we are filled in him. Filled in him can be defined as, um, and summed up as forgiven and redeemed. When you come to Christ, when you believe in Jesus, who is fully God, you find fullness of life and are fully redeemed, forgiven, and made right before God. 
through Jesus, set into motion by a sovereign God, we are holy. We are blameless. There is nothing on our list that God holds against us. There is no blame. There is no guilt because of Jesus. That sin that you are holding on to, that sin that you have a tidal wave of guilt every time you think about, that sin that you do all the time and can't get out of, is blameless before God solely because of Jesus Christ who sent for the soul, who was sent for the sole purpose of reconciling us and all of the heavenly realms back to God. All things back to God. All we have to do to receive this, all we have to do to have this holiness is believe in our heart, confess with our mouth, and we will be saved. What are you waiting for? I promise you it's life-changing. Maybe you know you uh, have already accepted this life-giving grace of Jesus by a sovereign God. If that is the case, amazing. Now stop feeling guilty. Stop harboring the guilt of your past. Stop holding on to that thing that weighs you down. You are holy. You are blameless. You are reconciled. All you have to do is believe, confess, and allow the undeserving grace of God through the power of the cross to take it from you. Maybe you are just hearing about all of this for the first time and have yet to make a commitment to God. You have no idea what you believe or even choose to not believe in this altogether. You would rather do your own thing, live your own life. God is willing and wants to bring you into his inheritance. Not just willing, he is desperate to do so and created a perfect plan to provide the opportunity for all to be reconciled back to him no matter what. All you have to do is accept this. So, we were once alienated, we were once separated, we were once hostile, and now we are reconciled back to God and God dwells in us today. We are holy, we are blameless. All we have to do is accept this gift and allow it to change our life. And this brings us to verse 23. And verse 23 provides us with a challenge of what our response to this grace should be. Our sovereign God, who created a plan for us to be reconciled, gives us a task. Part three of reconciliation, after we realize that we are alienated, after we realize our separation, we then have the opportunity to be forgiven. We are made clean. And then part three says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, that you heard. When we believe, we are forgiven. We are made clean, brought into the inheritance. There is nothing left for us except to live this faith out, to live this belief out. It's easy to be caught up in the emotion of having our guilt made clean, but it's a lot harder to then live this faith out. That is why Paul goes on to leave the church in Colossae and in turn us with the challenge of living out our belief. We have to live our life worthy of God himself. When we do, God dwells in us because our sin is made clean. This will translate into living out this faith. If we truly believe these things, it will have a direct influence in how we live. Sure, things will be hard. We will still be tempted. The world will, t- will still try and sway us away from God. Satan will attempt to bring us down. We have to live out our faith to allow our actions to point toward God, to allow everything that we do to be in accordance with the hope of the gospel. Even when things get hard, even when we are tempted, even when we experience loss, we cannot waver from the hope of the gospel that we know to be true and that we believed in upon becoming a Christian. We were once alienated. We were once distant. Yet we as Christians are now forgiven, made clean, holy, 
and blameless. In turn, we live this out. We have to strive to remain faithful, to remain steadfast. Sure, we will continue to make mistakes, but if we truly believe in this incredible promise, we will run to our sovereign God repeatedly for forgiveness, and we will strive to live in a manner worthy of God himself. All of this, Paul ends his thought with, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The magnitude of this points back to God. All of this points back to God who is sovereign and at the center of all. God set into motion a reconciliation for all things. This reconciliation happened through Jesus on the cross in which all of us, Paul included, as he says at the end, have the opportunity, the undeserving privilege of being a part of. We are pointing to God on earth and in the heavenly places. God's reconciliation for all is made clear in us and lived out in us. God is sovereign. We do not deserve God. We do not belong in God's inheritance. We are alienated, separated from God, yet God reconciles us. We are presented holy and blameless. We simply have to accept this and then live this out for all of the earthly and heavenly realms to see so that God can be rightfully glorified as fully sovereign. God set all of this into motion and we get the opportunity right here, right now, to live in the fullness of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is profound, incredible, life-changing, and I pray that you can choose to allow it to make a difference in your life as it did for Paul and as it did for me. That guilt you are holding on to, it is gone. You are blameless because of Christ. All you have to do is believe and allow this to change your life. That sin you repeatedly cave into, through the power of Jesus, you are made whole. You are forgiven when you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the reconciliation to God that that brings. You are challenged to get rid of every sin and allow our sovereign God to change your life. Allow yourself to walk in a manner worthy of God himself. That doubt you have of whether God is real, what he has done for you, whatever it is, the sovereign God who is before all and in all is, is extending an invitation and all you have to do is accept it and live it out. You won't have all the answers, but you can rest knowing that you are in the arms of a sovereign God. You can dive into knowledge and wisdom that God gives us. Let's really quickly summarize as we conclude. God is sovereign. God is before all, in all, creator of all, in authority over all things. God sent his son, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Jesus, who is fully God, who died for us, who took our sin, our blame, and then through the resurrection reconciled us back to God. All those who believe are reconciled and made clean. We are forgiven. We then have the challenge to live this out and walk in a manner worthy of God, fully pleasing to God, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, and living in the fullness of God that dwells in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear God, you are so good, and you um, have chosen to be with us right now. You have chosen to set into motion a reconciliation that we do not deserve. Through the power of your Son, we are reconciled, Lord. And I pray, and I thank you for that, and I pray that we can be challenged to also live out our faith. That we can be challenged to uh, trust in you. To walk in a manner worthy of you. Thank you that you are sovereign, and thank you that we have you to turn to no matter what and no matter who we are. I pray that our guilt that we are holding on to, I pray that we can let it go, that we can trust 
that you have made us holy as long as we believe and choose to follow you. Thank you for all that you do. Amen.